Football is back, and right now Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, and anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football with games being played nearly every day. And with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's match day feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today, we reflect on Liverpool's incredible title triumph, bringing you insight on how their owners turned a project, a dream, into reality. Stuart Webber, former director of recruitment at Anfield and now director of football at Norwich City, tells us about the hunger for success he witnessed firsthand on Merseyside with some great detail on John W. Henry. From my column this week, a top young player looks set to leave Arsenal. We discuss the future of Nathan Aki with our Bournemouth writer Peter Rutzler. And will Eric Dyer be offered a new contract at Spurs? The Athletics' Charlie Eccleshire will offer the latest on that and also the reasons behind a difficult relationship between Jose Mourinho and Tangi and Dombele. Right now, The Athletic is free for 30 days, bringing you the very best football writing around, covering you until the end of the season. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. Liverpool are of course Premier League champions and across The Athletic this week, there are a host of fascinating in-depth articles, including Ollie Kay charting how the club ended 30 years of hurt, Michael Cox on the tactical innovations that got the Reds back on their perch, and Rafa Honigstein on understanding Jurgen Klopp. There's also an exclusive interview with Liverpool chairman Tom Werner by James Pearce, and Simon Hughes has written a piece on the rise of Jordan Henderson. Henderson was brought to Liverpool in 2011 by then sporting director Damien Camoli. We spoke to Damien on this podcast back in late February and he told us how the signing of Henderson was actually one of the reasons why he lost his job. They, they, they sacked me. They said, you made a big mistake with Jordan Henderson. So I said, are you sure? They said, yeah, it's a big mistake. So I said, OK, well, I think you're wrong. Uh, but what can, I, uh, what can I say? You know, they are the owner of the club, the owners of the club, and if they want to make that decision, they make that decision. I was convinced he would be special. I was convinced he will be a Liverpool captain because he had all the attributes to become Liverpool captain as a player and, 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 and more than anything else as a person. So I'm delighted to see what is achieved. I think there is a lot more to come, as you just said. I think he could win something on the international stage as well. He's going to win the Premier League. Uh, I think he's going to win a lot more trophies going forward with Liverpool and he deserves all of it. Stuart Webber was director of recruitment at Liverpool in the early years of the FSG ownership, working alongside Rafa Benitez, Roy Hodgson, Kenny Dalglish and Brendan Rodgers. He's now sporting director at Norwich City and joins us now. Stuart, thank you very much for your time. I want to get straight into your time at Liverpool. For being a young guy from a very humble beginnings in mid-Wales to end up driving into the academy for the first time at Liverpool with that crest on your chest was surreal, you know, because obviously it's a beast of a football club. Yeah. It was absolutely um, surreal and it was an opportunity that I'll be forever sort of grateful for and um, you know I learned so much there and it, you know it was an absolute sort of privilege to have to have sort of spent time there leaving from Wrexham's quite easy really in terms of because uh, one of my 
good friends was working there, a guy called Steve Cooper, who's obviously the Swansea mm. manager now. It was pretty easy because, you know, I knew him, you know, he sort of helped me settle in quite quick. And then, uh, yeah, and then it's either sink or swim at, at that level of club, you know, because you can get eaten up. I think that was 2009. So we're now in 2020. Yeah. They've won the Premier League title for the first time in 30 years, straight off the back of winning the European Cup. But it was a very different club when you arrived. This sort of scenario was a million miles away at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I went there, you know, Rafa Benitez, it was his last season there. We'd got knocked out the Champions League uh, quite quick, got to Europa League uh, semi-finals when you got knocked out the group and went into the into the Europa League. And then obviously Rafa left at the end of that year, but it was, it was plain to see that, you know, we had financial challenges. You know, there's a problem between the, with the previous owners and the level I worked at the club. You know, I had no insight into that, but you could feel it, you know, when you're in a club and you can feel that it's not settled. Rafa was loved and adored there and quite rightly and was trying to get more and more control and he brought some staff into the academy and I think he had all the best intentions to stay there and carry on, but I think it was getting harder and harder for him in terms of, uh, you know, the structure above him. Being a, a club like that, and seeing, you know, how much finishing, I think we finished sixth in the league and what a failure that was. It was a real sort of eye-opener for myself because, you know, you think finishing sixth in the Premier League isn't bad, but for Liverpool, with that weight of history and, and everywhere you went around that city or the club, whether it was Melwood or the Academy or Anfield, I don't know, it, it's strange. You, it just sort of, you can just feel that history. You know, everywhere you go, it just, you can tell what it means to sort of, to be there and how success isn't an option it, it has to happen and um and then when it doesn't it's seen as a crisis so it was a real unsettling period at the club and i've huge sympathy for for rafa and what he was trying to do manage through that whilst trying to have half an eye on the the medium and long term in terms of developing the academy and the, and the scouting structures etc whilst working really with his hands tied behind his back which was difficult for him a lot of clubs will relate to that sort of situation but the new owners would have had a vision. They had Damien Camoli there as sporting director at the beginning. It's not unusual for this sort of chaos to be going on behind the scenes while you're trying to put that plan together. And it takes a lot of qualities and time to put that to fruition. Can you take us inside what was going on at the time? Was it a mess before getting to where we are now? Yeah, I think so. I think under the previous owners, it seemed very unsettled. Like I say, it didn't. You know, in my role, it wasn't overly affecting what I was doing, but you could feel it. But then obviously the new owners came in and they brought in Damien Camolian. And I think that was the, the most important decision they made because straight away they had someone in on the football side of the club who could have a, a view over everything. You know, the academy, the first team, et cetera, et cetera. And he knew what he was doing and he brought a real calming sort of stability straight away. And from that point on, we could sort of really strive and, and go forward. You know, and I thought it was unfortunate what happened to, to Damien in the end, but he was very good. He started, in my opinion, he started that journey. You know, Mr. Henry uh, used to come over and, and you could see that, you know, he didn't understand football, but he understood sporting industry. You know, I was really fortunate. I met him twice and bizarrely on his first day, I remember Damien Camoli brought him round and I, you know, I'm a young guy here, you know, so like I'm, I'm nervous round. Damien at this point because you know I'm thinking oh my god this is Damien Camoli someone you look up to and anyway Frank McParland who was my boss he was the academy manager said oh listen you, you need to give him a lift to the uh, to Anfield and my first thought is is my car clean because I'm thinking <laughs> what if it's not you know it like you know because you know what it's like it's you know if you haven't cleaned it for a couple of weeks or whatever so luckily it was and um, yeah and I remember driving them both to the uh, to Anfield and I'm sort of sat there going this is just incredible you know i've got you know the, one of the best director footballers in the world and you've got the owner of the club and i'm thinking what if i crash like you know like all these <laughs> things are going through your head but but it's brilliant but you know i remember you know the one thing which 
from Mr. Henry and he wouldn't remember this and he definitely wouldn't remember me. But, you know, I thought, what a nice bloke. But what he could see and you could feel in the language and the way he spoke was, this is a really nice guy, but he's also ruthless and he knows what he wants. And he might not at that point, and you'd have to ask him or people closer to him, he might not have known at that point maybe how to put it all together. But he knew what he wanted it to, to look like, you know, and, and I never had any doubt that they'd be successful because the other thing you could feel that they understood, you know, and, it, and this must be from the success they've had in, in the American sport, that these things take time. You know, when you're trying to build a culture, a philosophy, when you're trying to change so many different processes without having massive amount of money. Yes, Liverpool spent a lot of money. Of course they have. But, you know, when you put them against their peers, they haven't if that makes sense. So they've spent a lot compared to, I don't know, Everton or whatever, but maybe compared to, you know, Man United, Man City at Chelsea over that 10 years that they haven't. So I think that, you know, they had a clear way and a clear sort of vision of what they wanted to achieve. But most important, and this is something that our owner Delia talks about, Delia and Michael talk about all the time is, you know, they had that, that crucial word in football of patience, understood process that this takes time for us to get to where we want to get to. Quickly, they got a grip of the club and Damien got a grip of the club and, I thought it was, a, at the time, a masterstroke bringing Kenny in. So Kenny had came in under Rafa as like academy sort of ambassador. So he was at the academy yeah. every day, which again was, you know, for someone like me, I mean, crikey, Kenny Dalgleish is just, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not being funny. It's like having God walk into your office every day, right? You know, what an incredible man. And then he went to become the first team manager and that brought the whole club together because obviously everyone loves Kenny in terms of fans and, and all the staff, but also brought, because he'd been in the academy. At that point, Prior to him, you know, Rafa tried to get a hold of it and, and Rafa allowed us to spend the money, for example, on Raheem Sterling and stuff like that. But Kenny, I think, took the, when he went to Melwood, was like, you know what, the academy, there's a lot of good work going on and there's some fantastic people, you know, people like Rodolfo Burrell, uh, Pep Segura. You know, they're doing a good job there and they've got some good players. So I think that opened the door then for the academy and he built that bridge between the relationship between the academy and the first team, which I think is talk about building blocks and Kenny will get very, very little credit for that now because it's eight years ago but you know i i talk about it in terms of wales i'm a welsh guy and i was talking about mm. uh, the success of wales in the last euros you've got to remember what toshak did when he gave all these debuts yeah. at 17 18 19 and for me it's the same with kenny he built that bridge between the academy and melwood you know and then we had staff like john Achterberg, who's now the first team goalkeeper coach he went across and there's a physio called Mats Komplinski. He went across and it really helped because I think then people at Melwood start to go, okay, there's obviously there's good guys down there and there's good practice rather than being a little bit of oh, them lot up there. So I think Kenny did brilliant. I think everyone forgets as well that Kenny got to two cup finals and won one of them, which was the only trophy between, I think, was it 09 or 08 and the Champions League last year. And, and again, I think that's forgotten about that not only did he build some bridges but he actually won a trophy which you know for Liverpool is vitally important that was a sort of huge part of it of bringing the club really close together and you could really feel it when Kenny and Damien were working there together being on the inside then at the academy you know and, and suddenly I was able to go to Melwood with Frank McParland we'd go there like once a week and meet with Damien you know before that you might go to Melwood once a year. It was a brilliant time to be around the club at that point. The way you talk about the owners shows that they had a vision, but they understood the need to surround themselves with experts and people who could deliver that vision. You also mentioned that they're ruthless, and that was evidenced in the fact that they got rid of Damien Camoli. Whether you like these decisions or not, their project has come to fruition. What does that say to other clubs about 
you mentioned the word patience, resilience. They faced a lot of criticism from fans, from media, good signings, bad, missed opportunities in various competitions, but they kept going at that project and plan. If you look at all the most successful people in the world in, in any walk of life, they have a plan and they stick to it. They're not scared of making tough decisions. And I, I'm sure if, you know, I'm sure if you asked them, you know, letting Damien go at that point would have been a very, very tough decision because it was a shock to all of us within the club. It was a shock because we feel, and, and nothing's going to change my mind on that, Damien was doing a fantastic job. And I, I know at the time he got a lot of stick for like the signing of, of Jordan Henderson. And I'd love to see them same people who give him stick now and they should be sending him a bottle of champagne for that. Maybe they didn't understand as well as what they would do now in terms of, you know, Jordan was a, a young player who'd come from Sunderland big pressure on him in terms of a price tag that wasn't his fault coming into a huge club that is a heavy shirt on their shoulders you've got to be a certain character and personality to wear that shirt now they would probably see that differently of okay you know we signed a, a top young talent here maybe it will take a little bit of time to get the results as opposed to we want instant results but in fairness to them okay they let certain personnel go so Kenny went obviously at that time as well Damien went but they didn't rip up what they were doing. So, you know, Michael Edwards got promoted from within, who'd obviously Damien brought to the club. They obviously still believed in the strategy. You know, the academy staff, I mean, I actually left that summer through my own choice, but the academy staff for that period stayed the same. Uh, obviously, they brought in a, a new coach because they wanted to go in and, you know, they wanted to adapt the philosophy and go for a younger coach. So obviously, then they brought uh, Brendan Rodgers in. But so they didn't rip up the strategy. It wasn't oh, crikey, this isn't working. We've got to do something completely different. I think they tweaked it and they changed some of the personnel. And, and I think that's very different because sometimes personnel needs to be changed. Again, nothing will ever convince me at that time that uh, Damien should have been changed. Nothing would. But that's their call. And, and you know, ultimately, um, eight years on or whatever, they, they, they would say they got it right. But I think what they did do, they kept going along the, the same lines. So in terms of trying to do smart recruitment, trying to sign young and hungry players, trying to develop a philosophy a way of playing, keeping the academy close, investing in infrastructure, investing in process. That just continued, but, you know, obviously with different people and, and then people who've gone on to have, you know, incredible success. You talked about young players there. And one of the players you helped bring in was Raheem Sterling from QPR. People don't seem to talk so much now about his Liverpool time, certainly not the good parts of his Liverpool time, but I'm sure you remember them pretty well. And it, and it sort of strikes at what we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, ironically, we, we signed him before they came in. Um, it was under the old ownership and, and Rafa Benitez. But I think what the, the signing of Raheem did for us internally is it put us on the map. It, it said to people in academy levels that, oh, Liverpool are taking this serious here. You know, because everyone knew Raheem. You know, like, finding Raheem was very, very easy. Anyone could have found him because everyone knew about him. The key was being brave enough to, at that time, spend, you know, £400,000 on him, which... Seems cheap now, but back then was a lot of money for a 15-year-old. And that's where, you know, Frank McParland's academy director was brave enough to to sanction that, that amount of money. But I think it set a statement. And then also, you know, within a day of training, we knew that we had a, we had a special talent on our hands in Raheem who needed a lot of help to get to where he got to, you know, in terms of off the pitch and stuff like that because he had to mature, he'd move from London, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what it showed people within the club that no, we're serious about the academy. We knew we had a Liverpool starting player in Raheem. You know, that was the most important thing at that time was we need to get somebody in because, you know, prior to that, it was like the sort of Carragher era before they had real, you know, let's say 
the last proper set of players with Michael Owen and all them guys. When the new owners come in and could see this talent and could see the, okay, so if you invest that amount of money in a young player, you can turn him into, you know, what ended up obviously being a £50 million player, but Trent Alexander-Arnold, it's he's got into the team and, you know, he's cost no transfer fee. So even if Liverpool never sell him, and hopefully they won't need to, you know, if he plays 400 games for Liverpool, you can't, you know, the value of that to buy a player who could play 400 games for Liverpool is costing you probably between 60 and 100 million pounds now. So it's seeing that saving. And I think that's where they probably, uh, Raheem really helped them understand that, no, you can achieve that. Two people who don't get as many mentions as your Jurgen Klopp's, understandably, are Michael Edwards and even more so Mike Gordon. Yeah, I can't in terms of Mike Gordon because I I Mm -hmm. never met him, so I can't on him. But in terms of Michael, yeah, I obviously worked with Michael. So Damien brought him in uh, to head up the sort of data department within the club. And, you know, it was very, very apparent quickly that this guy is outrageously intelligent very very bright and had an idea and had a way of working which at that point was still for football new and let's be honest people were very very skeptical about it they probably still are now but certainly back then luckily for myself I was young enough that at that point you're still very open-minded so you know I, I took a lot from him in that short period we uh, we worked together and I think to be honest for the uh, for the American owners and their their sporting background they actually don't know anything other than the sort of statistical sort of modeling so I think for them probably coming to to European football it was probably a major shock that we didn't even at a Liverpool did take didn't at that point didn't overly take it sort of seriously it was sort of still only just really coming in into the game and in drips and drabs so I think the work that Michael's done is incredible. You're right, he doesn't get the credit uh, he deserves. It probably suits him that he's not in the limelight, in, in, in all honesty, because I'm sure if he wanted to be, he could be. For sure, there's less and less mistakes as they go on, but at the beginning, I'm sure they'd be very honest about certain players that they signed weren't good enough, didn't work, you know, and, and they spent a lot of money on. But, again, it comes back to the top of the club understanding that that can happen, rather than, you know, I think some people expect every single signing to work, and it doesn't, whether you've got money or not. And Liverpool, probably at, at that point, let's be honest, they weren't competing until, in my opinion, the last three years. They weren't competing for the for the world-class players. They were competing for the for the next tier down. And, and you can get them wrong. You know, you, you can waste £30 million on, on a player who doesn't become... And people think that's ridiculous, but that can happen because the, the gap between top players and world-class is, is big and, and it's hard to make that jump. It's different when you can go and buy Van Dijk at 75 million or whatever because you know you're buying the best centre-back in the world or Alisson the best goalkeeper in the world in my opinion the lesson learned for other owners and, and executives within clubs is that you can make a bad decision that doesn't mean that everything you're doing is wrong and all your process is wrong it, it can go wrong and sometimes it's unexplainable why you know a player hasn't worked out or, or a coaching appointment hasn't worked out or whatever it doesn't mean you have to scrap everything you're doing and I think Liverpool are uh, the best example currently of sticking to that and and I'm sure Man City will be that now we've just finished Mm. uh, you know unfortunately for them a distant second I'm pretty sure they're not going to rip it all up and change what they do in the summer just because of that it's listen congratulations Liverpool better this year we need we need now now need to improve and and get better and and I'm sure they will and I think that's great lessons for so many clubs at every single level not just the top level I think every every level really keen to ask you if it's dangerous for other clubs to just 
copy this structure. Manchester United, for example, have chopped and changed. They'll want to do it their own way. Arsenal, Tottenham, Chelsea, all all of you guys, all the way down into other divisions, other countries as well. But you've got to tailor it to what's right for you. Mourinho said a comment not long after he'd he'd been in the country about, he says, I always let people come and watch me work and can ask any question they want. He says, because it's impossible to to copy me and I, I think it is impossible to copy people you can take ideas and you can take best practice but you know you've got to remember you've got unique people in that club whether it's you know Jurgen Klopp whether it's Michael Edwards um, it's a unique club in terms of the the culture and, and the fan base and 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 the history and, and the heartbreak that the the clubs had over the years you know it is it, it's unique and you can't replicate that I think it's about finding your own way and your own plan and being strong enough to stick to it and you know we, we have a mantra here about ignoring the noise I think that's so important that you know don't worry what the next club are doing or what one of your competitors are doing worry about what you're doing in it and if you believe in it stick to it. I might just finish by asking you how life is at the other end of the spectrum now. You've obviously uh, got a huge fight on your hands at Norwich, but the club's well run and, and seems prepared for any eventuality. For us, we've been, you know, we were very honest from the start, you know, when we, you know, 30 seconds after getting promoted last season, we were we were very honest that we'll spend the least in the league and we'll have the lowest wage bill and, and we haven't disappointed on that. We know what we are and who we are. So does it hurt at the moment? Yeah, it hurts like mad because, you know, your, your pride gets dented and no one wants to lose football matches. But is it to be, is it, is it a shock? Well, no, it's not. You know, we, we, we expected this to be a real long sort of hard season and, you know, we've had some bad luck along the way in terms of injuries and we knew for us to be successful this year, we'd need everything to work for us and, and that hasn't happened uh, yet you know we've still got time but it hasn't happened yet most fortunate for us as a club is that we're in good shape if the worst happens and we get relegated it's not an end of the world for our club we've got lots of uh, lots of good young players who've now played a lot of football over the last two years whether that was in a promotion winning team or you know in a Premier League season this year and we've got a plan and again it's we don't panic we're not going to chuck you know we're not going to be you know, sacking the coach next week or anything like that it's like well no we know where we are we know who we are we know what we need to do. We've learned so many lessons this season already. Again, whatever happens, that we know what we need to do to uh, to improve and get better. And 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 that's the most important thing. You know, every day it's about learning and, and it's about developing and it's about understanding that along the way things don't go perfect and they don't go to plan. I think football is an infinite game, isn't it? It never ends. So it's about we've got to continue that and always have that in mind that you know a relegation, a promotion, a winning a league or whatever. That's just part of ultimately a, a never-ending sort of journey. I think if you can get your head around that, then you don't maybe make absolutely crazy decisions because I think the crazy decisions come from ego of you know that battered and bruised, your ego that you do things to try and turn it around or get people on side. Whereas if you can constantly understand the longer game that you're playing as a club, then you know maybe it's you know a little bit less uh, a little bit less panicky, and and that would certainly be our aim if. Uh, if the worst happened. I was reading a Michael Bailey piece just this morning. It seems like you're going to be fighting off some vultures for the likes of Timo Puki, Buendia and, and of course Todd Campwell, who's made such an impression. You know, we've got some good players. I think, you know, we've proven that this season, but also as well, they've still got a lot of developing to do, you know, whether that's Timo who's 31 or, or Todd and, and, and the other young guys that you mentioned there, they've still got a lot of development to do. And I think what's really important for, for players is not always thinking, you know, if the worst happens relegated, I need to move. Because, you know, if you take a player like Ryan Session, for example, where is he? You know, and, and if, you, if you're not careful here, 
you know, play, young players can leave too quickly rather than doing your career and, and earning your, your your stripes. And and again, I think it comes back to Liverpool. Look at look at two of their key players, uh, Robertson and uh, Van Dijk. And you know, I challenge any young player to look at their journey of how they got there. You know, in terms of Robertson, you know, Dundee United down to um, Hull, playing you know unfashionable without being rude, an unfashionable sort of club playing championship football. Then he gets his move to Liverpool, but he gets his move to Liverpool when, what was it, 25 or something, not 17, 18, 19, 20. You know, and the same with Van Dijk, you know, Groningen over to Celtic, down to Southampton, you know, and he moves to Liverpool at, what, 26, 27, when he's ready to move there. And I think sometimes you've got to be really careful as young players of moving too quick. And if you're going to move somewhere, move somewhere where you you, you think, yes, I'm going to definitely get in the team, not, okay, I'm going there because they want to sign me as a young project and you know 12 months later you're on the phone to us crying because you want to come back on loan but we've moved on you know because that's already happened to us and I don't want to see that happen again but obviously if a top club comes in and, and they offer top money and it's the right thing for all parties us and and the player then that's also life as well you know and James Madison is a great success story for that you know where everyone I believe won in that you know we got a record championship fee for a player at the time Leicester got a fantastic player and James got a great move and look at him now. He's hopefully going to be in the Champions League next season. He's already in England since Astral. So I think everyone in the end can win here, but don't move too quick and don't certainly don't go to the wrong club. Stuart, thank you so, so much for your time. Your, your experiences at Liverpool are absolutely invaluable for us and uh, Norwich have got a gem on their hands. Good luck for the final seven games uh, starting at the Emirates Stadium on Wednesday. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Stuart Webber talked there about players who might be on the move this summer. In last week's pod, we heard how Aston Villa will struggle to keep hold of Jack Grealish when the window opens, especially with relegation a possibility. And in my column today, we look at how Bournemouth could be in a similar position with one of their star performers, Nathan Aki. We know there's a great deal of interest in the versatile Dutch defender, the likes of Chelsea, who let him go to Bournemouth in 2017 and have a a buyback, a first refusal sort of claws on him. Manchester City have watched him over time. Likes of Tottenham and Arsenal have also been linked. And what I explain is that Manchester City have intensified their interest of late with some level of discussion about, you know, whether a deal could come together in certain circumstances and the big issue is that those circumstances are so unclear because of Bournemouth's status will they survive relegation or drop down into the championship what money will be available we don't know when the transfer market will even take place in terms of precise dates but Manchester City admire him they're looking for a left centre-back to bolster their options Um, and he's one of several names in the frame. I'm delighted to be joined by our Bournemouth writer, Peter Rutzler, who can bring us right up to date with Bournemouth's position on this. Pete, how do you understand it? You wouldn't begrudge him making that next step up. Now, of course, from a Bournemouth perspective, they've always never seen themselves as having that glass ceiling. They're always wanting to progress. This season has been uh, a challenge on that front. I can't see Nathan Ake playing in the Championship next season if that were to come to pass. And the financial implications of not just re- uh, relegation, but the, the coronavirus pandemic, what that means for, for the club means that they may be more in a position to sell this summer. We're looking at, you know, reported £40 million, pounds, bit higher, bit lower, depending on various circumstances. He's a super player, uh, arguably an even better person and professional from what I hear. Um, but not everyone's convinced in terms of him perhaps being a tiny bit small for, for central defence at a top club. And that's why one recruitment 
expert told me that it's it's really only Chelsea or Manchester City based on availability of squad places at the top clubs, financial resources and Ake's style of play. On the defensive side, you know, he's, he's a complete defender. He's brilliant at anticipating danger. He's very good uh, in the tackle. He's quick. He's, he's mobile. He's agile. And then, of course, it's his ability on the ball. Now, Eddie Howe likes his sides to play out from the back. They like to play uh, through the phases when they can. And, and Ake is their main ball-playing defender. And I guess the thing that stands out with him, especially when you look at Bournemouth's five-year stay, they've always conceded a lot of goals. And I think that sort of, it sort of detracted from, from Ake's standing a little bit. But when you actually watch them week in, week out, he's the one player that you can't have a bad word to say about. He's always consistent. When he came into Bournemouth, one of the things they wanted to improve was to make him more vocal, to become more of a leader, not just in the way he plays, but you know, off off the field as well. And he stepped up in that regard, especially of late. And to lose him would be would be such a blow, especially if they they keep they do stay in the Premier League. The money that it might bring in for Bournemouth could be invaluable. Um, so we can see why that's a distinct possibility from that perspective too. One person they won't be able to bring any money in is f- for Ryan Fraser. As I understand it, the clubs that he would sort of most like to join aren't in for him at this moment in time as a free agent. There's a lot still for them to sort out in their squad planning and whether they'd be able to afford his salary demands as a free agent. Um, and so he would probably at this moment in time be looking at a, a sort of slight rung down. That could change at any moment and they've got time to wait it out. What's going on with that situation at the moment from Bournemouth's perspective? Ryan is no longer training with the group once he communicated his decision to Eddie Howe. He took the decision to not include him in the squad that's now battling to stay in the Premier League and, and that was an understandable perspective to take. Um, Fraser would only have been available for, for two games really and Howe wants to concentrate on those who will be fighting to keep the club afloat. Despite Fraser's season, he hasn't hit the same heights that he did last year where you know his assist numbers were on a par with Eden Hazard. His underlying numbers are still very, very strong. And for a team that have really struggled in the final third this year, not having him for this crucial run-in of games is, is a challenge. And I think we've already seen that in their, their opening two games following the restart. Liam Twomey wrote for The Athletic recently how Chelsea need Champions League football because of the way the club is geared financially. Is that comparable to Bournemouth when it comes to Premier League survival? And can you underline how critical these coming weeks are for Bournemouth as a club and then also Eddie Howe? Television money makes Premier League survival akin to that at Chelsea, probably more so for the implications for for Bournemouth. Um, 88% of their television income from the Premier League goes on wages, which means should the club go down, that figure will have to come down. And it's, it's... The club... Naturally, the players will have relegation clauses. My understanding is that that is the case for, for, for the squad. But what that will mean in, in realistic terms is you know, that that means player, players may have to leave. I think the first parachute payment is £45 million. So that's straight away, that's most of their income cut in half. That's a radical change for any business, not least Bournemouth and not least in the current climate. My understanding is that they've had to pause construction on their training ground while uncertainty still remains. From their latest accounts, it, it read that they're due to, to pay other clubs £30 million in transfer fees this summer. So that's on top of everything else as well. So it's a very delicate situation. Premier League survival is massive for the way the club is run at the moment. That's not to say that if they go down that they wouldn't be in a position to, to stomach it, but it would, it would mean changes in terms of squad personnel. I think that's, that's almost a given. And then it, it does raise questions for Eddie Howe because he's got to look at it 
and think whether he would want to oversee what would probably be a rebuilding job, reconstructing the project, doing it again, bringing the team back up. And that would be a challenge for a manager who is ambitious. You know, he loves the club. He's, he's, you know, he's, got, he's got a job for life there. For him, it's, that's, a, that's a big task, especially in the championship, a division that's so competitive as well. Pete, thank you very much. Wish you all the best for the final few games of the season and uh, let's see how it pans out for Bournemouth. No problem. Thanks, David. Harry's sponsors the Ornstein and Chapman podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five blade brands. I can vouch for that. And with football coming back, if you're anything like me and could do with sharpening up your appearance, give them a go. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. As a listener of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash Ornstein right now. That's harrys.com forward slash Ornstein. So to Tottenham and maybe you could say a tale of two players at the moment if Charlie Eccleshear's writing is anything to go by because he has spoken in recent days about both Tangi and Dombele and that relationship with Jose Mourinho. Far from ideal what's happened in his first season at the club given he's a club record signing and when Tottenham make a signing of that level they really want it to go right. And on the other side he's written today about Eric Dyer, who is going into the last year of his contract, but seems to ha- have had a bit of a resurgence in form since lockdown was lifted and, and uh, the Premier League restarted. Thanks, Charlie, for joining us now. And should we start with Eric Dyer? Yeah, so lots going on with Dyer. So contractually, he's entering into the last year of his contract. So his deal expires uh, summer of 2021. It felt for a long time as if that might be it for him. You know, he'd fallen out of favour. He wasn't playing as regularly. He'd suffered with illness and injury last year. But he has had a bit of a resurgence. He's actually started Tottenham's last six games across, you know, before and after the lockdown. Uh, And in the two since, he's been really, really solid playing at centre-back, which is the position that he wants to play. So it's looking a lot better for him. And all of a sudden you think, well, he holds the power here because he could leave on a free potentially next year and he as we know he grew up in Portugal he speaks uh, he speaks uh, fluent Portuguese he speaks good Spanish so you know a move abroad appeals to him but at the moment he's happy at Tottenham and he gets on well with Jose Mourinho but then yeah as you say there's also this doubt uh, in the in the immediate term cast over him because he has this ban hanging over him and and we're hearing there are fears that it will be longer than a couple of games. If that, if he does get a long ban and he decides he wants to leave and Spurs think, well, actually, they should cash in this summer, then we, we could be witnessing the beginning of the end. But the flip side is his form is much improved. He's starting regularly. So maybe it is the start of a resurgence for a player who kind of rose to prominence very quickly and then maybe had a bit of a slowdown. And so, um, yeah, it looks like he's rising again, potentially. All sorts to consider on this one. A couple of years ago, he fired England uh, to a World Cup penalty shootout victory. Mm. Uh, What a rare experience that was. I think he's the only player who's ever scored a winning penalty for England in a shootout at a major tournament. So, yeah. That's worthy of a statue in itself. (laughs) Exactly. And then we saw a bit of a dip around health issues with his appendix. Mm. And was it the start of uh, the season 
previously that he missed and then ups and downs in form and fitness your piece really explains him as a person he's very cultured uh, very diverse and has a lot of elements to him that I personally didn't know so I'd urge people to go and have a read of that why wouldn't you offer him a contract if you were Tottenham yeah, I think now it feels like a bit of a no-brainer. The situation has changed. Um, you know, I think previously they might have thought, well, he feels like he's a, a player on the decline. And you and you have to remember as well the context because so many players at Tottenham during this period have stayed longer than perhaps they should have done. You think of Christian Eriksen, Danny Rose, who's technically still at the club. You could also argue uh, the former manager, Maurizio Pochettino. So there may have been an element previously that it seemed as though he was a player who was declining. And so, you know, should they almost just move on? You know, this idea that rather than clinging on to the past. But actually, I think now he's a really important link back to that period. And he is a very important part of the dressing room. The fact that he speaks languages is culturally very open-minded he he he's central to that and he's a real leader this is something that you know you hear from pretty much everyone who's worked with him he's not afraid to speak his mind um he's intelligent so i think it has shifted and they really should be should be looking to keep him i i guess as well uh, as, as you know there may be some delay just because of the uncertainty um with you know, COVID and everything, and we still don't even know the season is definitely going to finish. Hope it will, but um, yeah, I, I, I think they should and, and and will do um do what they can to try and keep him. He's so versatile as well. One player who would appear, I stress, appear not so important to the dressing room or certainly to the head coach is Tangi and Dombele. Am I wrong there? Am I missing something? Can you bring people up to date with your latest piece on him? This has been a subplot that's been running throughout the season, really, uh, certainly since Mourinho came in. Uh, though it's important to say that Pochettino had reservations as well, so it's not exclusively a Jose and Dombele issue. But the latest is, you know, what I'm hearing is they don't really get one another. They're very different personalities. Uh, their approaches are very different. Uh, and Dombele is quite a shy person. He doesn't really seek confrontation particularly, whereas Mourinho likes to challenge his players. And Dombele at the moment is not responding massively well to that. There are dressing room concerns that Ndombele hasn't been training as hard as maybe he should have done. He you know, views himself as being fit and he's told Mourinho that he he feels fit to play. But he's played the 90 minutes once under Mourinho. And the last game he started was away at Burnley shortly before the lockdown and he got hooked at half time. So it doesn't look good. And, you know, Spurs play three games in a week next week. I suspect he'll get to play in one of those and get his chance. But Mourinho just doesn't trust him at the moment. He hasn't played a minute since the football restarted. And when you think that, you know, there are five subs available... And he's your record signing. That's that's pretty damning. Charlie, thank you as always, and we'll speak to you again soon. Cool, thanks. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. 
Now, I asked your questions on Twitter and you've obliged, so let's dip into the mailbag. Use Arsenal says, is there any chance Arsenal don't sell Balogun? Is signing a contract still a possible outcome for him? Unfortunately, as things stand, uh, Florian Balogun is going to be leaving Arsenal. It's a decision that has been made on his part and Arsenal, I think, have come to accept that and will do business for him if a suitable offer arrives, as opposed to losing him on a free transfer in a year's time. Unfortunately, they've not been able to agree a contract. Of course, that will be in part down to money. These situations always are. But I don't think that was the motivating factor for him. I think he wanted to see a clearer path to first team training and also matches and Arsenal have got a wealth of options, especially young ones at centre-forward at the moment. And so with so much interest in him from elsewhere, some of Europe's top clubs and Arsenal turned down an offer in the region of £5 million for him from Brentford in January, uh, I think it's just been decided and accepted that it's going to be time to move on. So what will be really interesting to see is whether that word suitable offers arrive uh, if they don't then obviously he'll he'll have to stay and uh, see out the final year as things stand at the time of speaking the plan is for him to leave this summer red riot would manchester united have to sell pogba to buy any other marquee transfers in the summer window? And I think you're thinking there of Jaden Sancho. Well, I don't know the exact answer to this, and I would urge you to follow the writing of my colleague Laurie Whitwell on Manchester United, and especially around the Pogba situation and finances. Uh, what I do know is in talks with potential signings, Manchester United have been clear that they need to gain some clarity on what's happening with Paul Pogba so they know what financial position they sit in, they know what position they sit in from a squad vacancy point of view and so Manchester United have got such resources that you would imagine if they really want somebody that they can stretch to the required amount of money but equally Ed Woodward has talked a lot about how challenging these financial times are and that will dictate a lot of what they're able or want to do but yeah Pogba's position, his status will will have a bearing on everything because he is a marquee player. He has a, a prominent role in the team and squad and whether he is there or not will undoubtedly have a significant bearing on Manchester United's transfer strategy. Mark Sugar, will Sean Dyche still be in charge of Burnley next season? Uh, how about that for putting me on the spot? You know, I would only say it's never been more doubtful because we've seen his public comments. We know the situation Burnley, you just need to read Andy Jones on The Athletic to see uh, what some have described as sort of a mess, carnage, chaos behind the scenes. And and Sean Dyche has kept them going through that. You know, they won their last match and he's done a brilliant job there over seven or so years. He is admired by other clubs, but there needs to be the right vacancy. And I think he has a lot of loyalty to those players and those players have loyalty to him. So it won't be an easy decision. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if he moved on this summer and... Um, and Burnley were, were in, in the market for a, a new manager. But equally, it wouldn't stun me if he was still there. What the priority will need to be from, from both parties is to try and repair this relationship quickly. And that is going to take some doing because there have been some real cracks exposed in recent weeks. Say It will really come down to Sean Dyche and he's earned the right to decide that, hasn't he? I hope I've answered some of your questions there. Keep them coming and we'll try and do the same in the coming weeks. Right, that's it. Thanks for listening as always. We'll be back next week.